starting a new uh, series. If you have your Bibles, and you can turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. And uh, we're going to attempt to basically go through three different chapters, 2, 3, and 4 of Genesis, and talk about the first marriage. And so we started this sermon series this week that's called The Marriage Story. And what we're going to do over the next four weeks is we're going to introduce you to a more marriage story from the Bible. So this is the first marriage, which is Adam and Eve. And next week we're going to talk about Aaron, uh, uh, Abraham and Sarah. And we're going to talk about Ahab and Jezebel, third week. And the fourth week, we're going to talk about Aquila and Priscilla from the book of Romans, I mean the book of Acts. And so four different stories, four different marriage stories from the Bible. And the point of it is to learn from God's word about marriage. We're in the month of February. We have Valentine's Day on the 14th. And we saw it as a good opportunity to talk about marriage. Uh, if you've been a Redeemer since the beginning, we typically don't do this. We don't typically do these kind of topical type sermons. But we thought it was important to take four weeks to get into God's Word and learn about what it means. What is, what is marriage? I mean, what is its meaning? What is its power? What is its essence? What is it trying to accomplish? What is its purpose? And that is kind of what we're going to attempt for the next four weeks. Um, and so we're going to talk about the story of Adam and Eve. The first marriage. So I have a kind of a main idea. Uh, we like to put these big ideas. So if we take what we're about to teach and put it into a somewhat of a, a short, or not a short, but a sentence, <coughs> a complete sentence. That all marriage stories need the all-sufficient grace of God to reflect the attributes of Adam and Eve's identical marriage story in a fallen world. That's kind of a big idea. The purposes that I kind of want to accomplish through this, I want to talk about the origin of marriage. What is the origin of marriage? Where did it start? We're going to talk about the characteristic of Adam and Eve's identical or Eden marriage, the marriage that they had in the Garden of Eden. To explain the brokenness that eventually marked their home, right? And the fourth thing is to explain the all-sufficient grace of God that gave Adam and Eve hope. I love the end of the story of Adam and Eve, right? It ends with hope. It was somewhat of a, a positive story in the beginning, a tragic story in the middle, and then it ends with a bit of hope. I want to talk about that. Before I get into that, I don't I have not seen the movie. Some of you who have seen this movie probably can talk about its kind of uh, uh, very down and depressing nature of the story. But there's a, a movie that came, in on, that came out on Netflix in December called The Marriage Story. This is a story with Adam Driver. Adam Driver, if you know who Adam Driver is, he was Kylo Ren in Star Wars. Uh, he is a great actor, by the way. If you only see Adam Driver in Star Wars, you're kind of missing his, his, his talent. He's a very talented actor, and he's in this movie called Marriage Story, and Scarlett Johansson is also in this part, and they play a husband and a wife. Uh, Adam Driver plays Charlie, and uh, Scarlett Johansson plays Nicole, and they're married. And basically, the, story, the movie is about this kind of, uh, their kind of marriage, but also the, 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 the destruction of their marriage, which leads to divorce. So, in a sense, it's not really a marriage story, it's really a divorce story. Before I get to talking a little bit more about that, give me a little some statistics about marriage. Marriage is going through a touch stretch as an institution. Honestly, it's been going through a touch stretch for a while now. Uh, some, some facts here. In the 1970s, 89% of all births were married were to married parents. 89%. In 2015, 60% of 
of children born in the United States were born in a marriage. 60%. That's a huge decrease. 89% to 60%. In 1960, 72% of all adults were married. In 2008, 50% of all adults were married. Today, more than half of all people live together before they get married. Half of people who get married live together before they get married. Most marriages are assumed to be unhappy. Basically, the statistic is 50% in a divorce, and the other 50% are miserable in their marriage. That's kind of the assumption that if they haven't gotten divorced yet, they have to be miserable. That the idea of being in a marriage long-term leads to just more unhappiness, not happiness and joy. Living together, the view is if you live together before you're married, it improves your chance of making a good marriage choice. So really the idea is that love shouldn't be this hard. It, it, shouldn't, it should come naturally. If you're in a marriage, if you marry someone, if you're marrying your soulmate, it should be easy. It should be something that comes natural. But people realize as they get into marriages that love is very difficult. It's very hard. And so as they get into this marriage and they, it gets difficult and love gets difficult, and they assume it should be natural, they say, I must not love this person because it's difficult. It should be more easy. And that's what you really learn in this movie, The Marriage Story, which is nominated for six Academy Awards. So if you are in the Academy Awards and you like to watch it, it's going to be nominated for six Academy Awards. Basically, kind of a synopsis of the movie, The Marriage Story, is that divorce is described by the director as, as like a death without a body. I think that's a great definition of divorce. A death without a body. Because if you really kind of glean from Genesis chapter 2 of one flesh oneness, a divorce really is a breaking of one flesh, which is kind of like a death. Without a body. Something has been lost. There's, been, there's grieving, anger, denial, and, and his personal and moving story. The director captures the insidious nature of divorce, how two well-meaning people who still care about each other will do things they would never think they would do. Surely you're not the kind of person who would use secrets as a weapon in a divorce case. You wouldn't turn a child against a parent to get an advantage. It's other people who do stuff like that. With remarkable grace and compassion for his character, the director portrays divorce as a great equalizer, turning us into versions of ourselves we didn't expect to become. This is a marriage story that ends with a tragic ending. That the story of Charlie and Nicole's marriage in this movie is a, is a story of tragedy. It ends with a tragic, tragic, tragic ending, not a happy ending. A marriage that may have started happy ended in disaster or destruction. Some marriage stories can be inspiring, right? There's some stories, there's people that we know, or there's stories that we've read about a marriage couple that maybe they had some good times and bad times, but it's uplifting, it's inspiring. Marriage stories can be a little bit of both, can't it? Tragic, inspiring at the same time. How people define the meaning of life really goes into their meaning of marriage. If the meaning of life is the fruit of freedom of the individual to choose the life that most fulfills him or her personally, therefore their meaning of marriage is a contract between two parties for mutual individual growth and satisfaction. If you believe that your life is about your own freedom, your own freedom of choice, your own fulfillment, your own individual success, well, that's going to kind of fall into your definition of marriage. You're going to see your marriage as something that has to affect you personally in a way that gives you a sense of health and goodness and success and all those terms. 
Marriage is the greatest gift from God, where God unites a man and a female into an interdependent relationship of love, sacrifice, devotion, oneness, and comfort. Yet sin corrupted the characteristics of marriage, but God's all-sufficient grace brings hope to all marriage stories. Let's get into Genesis chapter 2. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. We would be here forever, and i got a lot to talk about, a lot to get into. Uh, so Genesis chapter 2, if you're one of those people that just want to, you want me to read all three chapters of what I'm going to preach, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. I'm gonna, kind of, we're going to kind of, kind of go through 2, 3, and 4 quickly. Um, chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Wait, let me read 18 and then we'll come back up here. And the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. That's part of the story. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of a man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful for this time of teaching. Lord, marriage is a difficult topic for some of us. For some, it brings us a sense of hope because we're not married yet and we look forward to that day. For some of us, it gives us a sense of memories of, of the day, Lord, that, that, we, were, that we were married and, we, and, we, and during our wedding story, Lord, and it just brings us a lot of joy to talk about our husband and our wife and, and our children and all that you've done. But for others, Lord, it's a tragic story. Something that ended not in a way that they expected or hoped for. But Lord, I pray that you would teach us. That you would teach us the meaning of marriage. That you would teach us what you're trying to accomplish through marriage. Through our own marriages and the marriage that we're hoping for. Lord, may you give, show us your grace. May you illuminate our minds and hearts to your word. Lord, we pray for those who are not with us, Lord, because of sickness and flu and all that that's going on. We pray for those who are struggling with that, who are enduring flu-like seasons, Lord. We pray for family members that are sick, that got bad news this week. We pray for John Greenbank, a friend of our church. Pray for him as he is getting this news about his health, Lord. I pray that you would give him, that you would sustain him, and that you would give him your grace, Lord. Lord, we praise you for who you are and what you're doing in this church. And pray that you would bless us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> so point number one is Adam lacks a companion in paradise. Adam lacks a companion in paradise. So God forms Adam from the ground. Before we get to 18, that God formed the man from the ground. He created him from the dust. He formed him 
Basically, the language is like a craftsman, right? He, he, God takes this material, the ground, and forms a man. God is the great craftsman. If you're a craftsman in this room, and some of you are, the great craftsman is God, right? I mean, God is a craftsman, and he crafts Adam from the material to the ground. Breathed into his nostrils, a kiss of life, in a sense. He gives him life. We see the same thing in John 20, 22, when Jesus breathed on his disciples. This kind of affection, this kiss of life, of new creation. So what we see with Adam, God is showing affection to this new creation. He gives it life, an act of giving love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. His affection, God is an affectionate being. He gives, and he gives life. And he gave life to Adam from the ground. Now, when a relationship is formed, when a child is born, that first kiss by their parents is a moment of recognition, right? This is my child. I kiss it. I show it a sense of affection. God shows affection to Adam and crafts him. This is his child. He accepts responsibility for him. And the man becomes a living creature. God gave him life. He is a person with thoughts, emotions, and volition. He is alive. God has formed from the ground man and given him his image. Lord God planted a garden in his creation. And he called that garden Eden. He put the man, he put Adam in the garden. He made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. He gives him all that he needs. He provides everything for Adam. If you ever like, stop to read the Genesis story or Genesis chapter 2, there's this the beauty that is expressed in this, in this passage. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four different rivers. The tree of life is in the middle of the garden. It's beautiful scenery, rich with food and water. A perfect environment. If you could think of the most perfect place in your mind, if you could somehow form that illustration of this beautiful place with everything you possibly could have or need, this is what Adam experienced in the garden. He put the man in the garden to work in it to keep it. Adam was responsible for protecting the garden and also expanding the garden. Moses, who's the author of Genesis, gives us, the reader, a vision of a larger world beyond the garden. Adam is tasked to expand what is true in the garden to the world beyond. He's given this cultural mandate to expand what God provides in the garden to expand to the unreached parts of his creation. This isn't some primitive simplicity in store for humanity. That is, as if we're just going to live simply in our garden state and we're not going to do any type of work or task. God gives Adam a task to expand Eden to the rest of the world. Even some of the language we see in Genesis 2 of Gold and even a, a, a nation is mentioned, Assyria, Tigris and the Euphrates River, the birth of civilization, art, literature, music, architecture, agriculture, science. Adam was tasked to fill the unfilled places with all of these things. The world is open for Adam to craft as God's image bearer. Like God crafted Adam to breathe life into the world, Adam is to breathe life into the world. God, Adam is a social being, like God, to assemble and to put in order. You think of social media. Social media may be something you think is a bad thing, but social media is a byproduct of the social attributes of humanity that we share with God. That we are social and want to connect with people. 
Think of how cool that job is, right? I mean, Adam is given the job of, all right, the whole world is yours to fill. Your task is unlimited in how, what you can do in this unfilled canvas. Lim not limited by resources or time, not limited by exhaustion or stress, free to fill the unfilled canvas of God's world. What a privilege. What a cool job that Adam is get, given here. The Lord God commanded the man. God gave Adam a covenant. He got entered into a binding relationship with Adam. If Adam obeyed the one command of God, the relationship would be harmonious. Adam had a perfect and satisfying relationship with God in the garden. He had nothing to fear, no pain or suffering or loss to experience. It seemed that Adam lacked nothing. That's actually not the truth. That's why I said all that, because I want to get to the bigger point here about marriage. What does God say? If you read this story, it's somewhat shocking what God says, isn't it? It's shocking what he says. He says, it's not good that the man should be alone. It's not good. Catch that. God has been saying since Genesis 1 that what he created was good. He said it was very good. But yet we get to Adam. He's in the garden. He has this task. He has all these food and resources. He's in this beautiful paradise. But yet God says, it's not good for you to be alone. God says, your creation is not complete yet. You're lacking in something. God recognizes that his creation of man is incomplete, that while he gave Adam life, wealth, a beautiful home, a relationship with God, a kingly task, an important element was missing. God is the one who acknowledges that something is not good. God is the ultimate judge of what is good and not good, and he says, this is not good for Adam. Amen. It's not good. I mean, we, we think, in the, in the, I don't want to get too far ahead, but in chapter 3 of Genesis, what does the... What, is, what does Eve say? She says the food, the tree of, 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 from, the, of the, from the knowledge of good and evil was good for food. Right? She doesn't know what good is. Only God can state the fruit. God, yeah, God said that the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not good. God can determine what is good and not good. And what he says about Adam's situation here is not good. It was not yet good. Because he lacked an equal partner to fellowship with. You think of the Trinity, right? God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. There's a fellowship between the three persons of the Godhead. Adam did not have an equal partner or equal person to fellowship with. The animals were not fit for him. They were not suitable for him. They were not good equal partners because they're not created in the image of God. Not a slave. He doesn't need a slave to do his bidding, right? He doesn't need a, a robot that's programmed to do whatever the man desires. There's that kind of a misconception in our world today because of sex robots that that's all that we need is someone who will just do our bidding whenever we want. They're not equal partners. That's not true fellowship. That's not true companionship. What we lack is an equal partner, and Adam lacked an equal partner. An equal partner, a fellow image bearer of God who is different than the man, a friend, a helper, not an inferior role. Even God is mentioned in Hosea 13 as a helper, that God is our helper. Psalm 54, 4, God is my helper. The relationship is one of interdependence. It's not good for both the, to be independent, but to be interdependent. It's important, it's good to be interdependent, not independent. Adam lacks the essential element, and God declares it not good for him to be alone, to be independent. God's creation of Adam was deficient or lacking by design. 
Joe Carter wrote, the need of Adam was not the result of the fall. It was the result of God's design. God made Adam with a built-in lean that would cause him to seek out intimate community. And he lacked that equal fellowship or that equal partner. Ray Ortland says, the insight offered here by the Bible is bold. It's saying that the delicate interplay between male head and female helper is not a mutation in human social evolution, but to be replaced by later development is a stroke of divine genius origin to its existence, original to its existence. The headship and helper role of the man and the woman was a stroke of divine genius. The head and the helper working together to expand God's glory is good. This is not patriarchal. This is not oppressive. The relationship is from heaven. Their relationship is a reflection of the Trinity itself. And for anyone to claim that it's patriarchal or oppressive is to say that the Trinity is oppressive and patriarchal. Point number two. In love, God gives his perfect daughter a way to satisfy his son. In love, God gives his perfect daughter a way to satisfy his son. Verses 21 through 25. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. The rib the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, female. The woman is man from the very stuff, stuff of the man. The rib, the material of the man. The woman was made for the man and from the man. Matthew Henry says, The woman was not made out of the head to rule over him nor out of the feet to be trampled upon him, but out of the side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Nowhere in the created order up to this point was sufficient for Adam. Nothing was suitable, nothing fit, but from the man of God formed a new creature that is equal to the man, but different, unique, and perfect for him. Perfect. God brought her to the man. What a great sentence. God brought her to the man. The first father of the bride is God. He walks his daughter down the aisle and gives her away to Adam. Gives Adam the woman as a gift. The greatest gift that God has given Adam is the woman. The woman. Greater than creation itself, an image bearer like Adam, but made to be his equal partner and helper. He says, this, which is great, right? This. I mean, you've got to catch these words. This. Like, wow. I wasn't expecting this. This, at last, is going to my bone and flesh my flesh. It's almost like he seems overwhelmed, like in awe, perhaps. His bride has been brought to him by God himself, smiling with glee at the craftsmanship of God, the wisdom of God. He sings a hymn. He praises. He sings a song and says, Woo! Wow! This, alas, this, this works. This fits. This is suitable. Think about what happens in his experience, right? He's asleep, right? He's slumbering. Then God brings her to him. He's not like he knew. He, had, he didn't watch God make her. He was totally surprised. Caught on guard. His jaw hits the ground. And he's been brought, almost struck by lightning by what he sees. At last. It's like love at first sight. She is perfect. He is not threatened by her. He's not on the fence about her. He's in love. He finally recognizes what was missing. And he is drawn to her. He praises God's work. 
She shall be called woman. Her name is her, he names her last. She is called woman, for she was taken out of man. They are identified together, but are distinct from one another. Some same substance, but different persons. Same purpose, but different roles. The man and the woman need and benefit from, from each other mutually. When they specialize in their roles to help the other in their deficiencies to accomplish the same purpose, God is glorified in their union. God, from the beginning of his creative work, creates complementary pairs, heaven and earth, sea and dry land, man and woman. They are meant to work together and fit together to make a more beautiful whole. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Adam and Eve are married, yet Moses adds some prescriptive language that does not directly describe Adam and Eve's marriage. Like, this is not something that's talking about their marriage. Why? Because there's no father and mother for Adam and Eve, really. So Adam's not leaving his father and mother. What Moses is doing is he's providing a prescriptive uh, uh, details about what marriage should be. Illustrating a major, major principle for our marriages that this relationship between a man and a woman who are married becomes the primary relationship in their life. Primary. Not secondary, not equal, but primary. The man must leave his family to create a new family with his bride. The sacrifice belongs to the man to leave his family and join with his wife. He now must do what is best for his new family. His wife's needs are primary. Her needs are above his father and mother's needs. He must give himself up for her. The man is to hold fast to his wife. To a sense like pieces of metal being soldering together. He is to hold fast to her, joining two pieces to make one. He is to adjust his life to join himself with her completely. He is devoted to her with every fiber of his being. If any of y'all seen the TV show The Crown from the first season... When, when uh, Elizabeth becomes queen, his, her husband, Philip, had to bow to her. Like, this was a point of tension with him. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm not bowing to my wife. But for her needs, and what was best for her, he did it. And though he didn't want to. He had to adjust his wants and needs to join himself to her. They shall become one flesh. The two lives become one fully shared life. No longer two independent, independent individuals, but with different wants and passions, but now one person with shared wants and passions. Their lives are now joined to build a new life together. One story, one purpose, one reputation, one bed, one suffering, one budget, one family. And there's a, there's a Lisa probably doesn't remember this because it was like the first year we were married. But we were, in the, we were living in Louisville because that was one of the seminary there. We were driving the car, we just got involved in this church. We were going to our first uh, like community group meeting. We got invited to this, this it was, I think it was like the first Bible study as a married couple we had gone to. And so we were going to this new place, we didn't know any people. And I mentioned, I, I said to her, and I'm trying to remember the exact wording was, basically I was saying, I like us better than I like me. Meaning like, I like, I like you, and you how, what you add to me that I like by myself independently. Because she's more outgoing than I am, so I don't have to feel like I have to be the center of attention or have to like reach out and be outside of myself, but I can just tag along with her. And in that little phrase is really what was going on here in Genesis 2 of joining together, bringing our deficiencies and our strengths to make the one person. Marriage is a call into total <coughs> abandonment, total trust, total surrender. There's actually, um, this gets into the pretty interesting details. When a couple has been married for long periods of time, when they get older and one of the, the partners dies, 
they actually call it that there's almost a memory loss. Why? Because the other person almost did so many other did so many tasks and they were they specialized in certain tasks that you almost rely on that person to do those tasks. So if there was a person, if your if your wife or husband always did something and they passed away, you wouldn't know what to do. Why? Because you relied on them so much to do that thing. They call this um, this actual term called uh, transactive memory in a close relation. Transactive memory. They almost share one memory. And when one dies or goes away, we lose that memory. So there is, like, even in psychology, we talk about this oneness that happens. Marriage is the coming together of two into one. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And the story ends with this, this verse. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Moses takes us back into the garden. And he provides a short but clear description of Adam and Eve's marriage. Their marriage was peaceful and comfortable. They knew each other in a profound and deep, intimate, and vulnerable way. Nothing was hidden from one another. There was no fear. They were at ease. They had no reason to be embarrassed or shameful towards each other. Towards each other. They flourished together. They were free, innocent, and joyful. God was pleased with his work. The feeling you have on the day of your wedding was Adam and Eve's constant reality. Think about that. Their constant reality is probably the, your wedding day. That was a constant reality. The feeling, the peace, the ease, the joy, the happiness, the hope, the freedom, the devotion. Think about the, just kind of step back from the story a little bit. We've heard it so often. Just recognize the overwhelming grace and love of God. But God provided for Adam. And God provided for Eve. And they were perfect. In the garden. They were full of, of all of God's grace. Marriage is an illustration of God's grace to humanity. A window into his love for you. God sent his son to us to redeem us from a life that was restless without God. And we who have put our trust in Christ are made one with him. Christ left his father to lay his life down for us and be joined with sinners and be one with us so that we can be free <coughs> and at peace. Unfortunately, their story doesn't end. The story continues. It takes a sad fall. Number three is war breaks out in the home. War breaks out in the home. Verse 6, chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It's interesting how the story changes, even so slightly. Who's the center of attention in chapter 3? The woman. There's a change in roles that happens in chapter 3. No longer is Eve the helper, she's the head. She is not the center of attention. She becomes the spokesperson for the couple. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the, tree, of the trees in the garden. She tells the serpent what the law or the command of God was. Adam gave over his responsibility to protect the garden to Eve. So she then made an independent decision without the leadership of her husband. Adam was passively detached from his role, from his rule. No longer were they working together, but they were independently or independent. Adam listens to the voice of his wife. He obeyed his wife, and he did not leave her. God held Adam responsible for what happened in the garden. 
Not Eve. Who did God talk to after he talked to Adam? Who told you you were naked? Where are you? Why are you hiding? The Lord called the man, where are you? Not to the woman, where are you? The reversal of the role unleashed hell into the world, especially into the home. She was a poor leader, and he was a poor helper. Their marriage broke down, broke down, breakdown broke everything. Adam was responsible. He failed to love his wife well enough to protect her from the influence of the serpent. And then the saddest verse in the Bible, one of the saddest verses, and the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves holy balls. What a sad verse. Their eyes were opened, but it brought embarrassment. Comfort and security and safety was lost. Their vulnerability and exposure to each other was seen as painful. Their new enlightenment was actually a curse. Their nakedness made them feel dirty toward each other. Shame is that openness, and shameless is that openness because the theme shame is that openness became the theme of their marriage. No longer were they open and secure and free and vulnerable, they were shameful. That became the theme. They attempted to hide themselves from one another. Now also they could try to hide themselves from God, but they also tried to hide themselves from one another. Men and hobbies, work, pornography, sports, and television and video games is hiding ourselves from our wives. Women and tasks, family, home responsibilities, work, children, friends, is their attempt to hide themselves from their husbands. All are simply lone cloth to hide ourselves from God's gift, which is the husband and the wife. What, and, then, and then Adam has the audacity to say, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the, gave me the fruit from the, from the tree of good and evil, and I ate. Adam blames God. God, I don't recall ever asking you to bring the woman to me and look at what she's done. I didn't ask for her. You gave her to me, and look what she's done. Ultimately, God is to blame. Think what Eve was thinking there when Adam said that. Because she was there. She was, these are people, right? These are real people created by God. He says that she's the reason this happened. She is to blame. What do you think she thought? She's filled with shame. She's, filled, she's totally rejected by her husband as worthless. She is completely abandoned, disowned, unloved, and thrown to the curb. I don't want her. Get rid of her. Find something better for me. Adam sees his beautiful and perfect wife as a curse, not a gift. And he hides behind her. Again, he fails to fill his role. He pushes her in front to take the blame, to be the leader. She is the helper. And Adam passively steps back from his responsibility to the man, to be the husband, and say, I'm not to be responsible. She is. She's the leader. I'm just the helper. Even though she was created to help him. And it gets worse. In verse 16, and the curse is, God tells Eve, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. War is literally unleashed in the home. Not walls and now walls and defenses have been built, weapons positioned, ready, set, fire. Flash of the Titans, husband and wife in the home. Your desire is to control him, and he will rule over you. The helper has now become the controller. The leader and the shepherd has now become the conqueror. Harmony has been broken. Marital dysfunction is now commonplace in the home. 
The husband now passively, is now passive towards his wife's controlling actions. The husband is now oppressively ruling to force his wife to submit. The wife now criticizes, not supports her husband. The wife now weakens, not empowers her husband. This is the curse that's in marriage. It's in all marriages. The person you have married or will marry has been affected by the tragic events in the garden. Every home is marred. Every eventual home will be marred by the hell unleashed. Wives, future wives, you will attempt to control your husband. <coughs> it's been cursed. You've been cursed. Husbands or future husbands, you will respond to that control by either fighting back with oppression or passively submitting to the control of, of his wife. And each will point the accusing finger at the other. He is to blame, she is to blame for what's happening. Learn from their story. No one is perfect here. No one in this room is perfect. You cannot be a perfect wife. You cannot be a perfect husband. You cannot be a future perfect wife. You cannot be a future perfect husband. You will not be perfect. Learn from their story. Be wise. Turn to God for all his sufficient grace. Ask God to make you a wise husband. Ask God to make you a wise wife. Husbands, consider what the story tells us about our wives. They need our protection, they need our care, they need our sacrifice, they need our devotion. Husbands, be more mindful. Do not passively disengage. Do not passively disengage. That is the curse. Love her, hold fast to her, but only God, by his all-sufficient grace, can make you into the husband your wife needs. You cannot do it through reading books or listening to podcasts. It's only by God's sufficient grace. Wives. Consider what the story tells about your husband. God cursed the ground. In pain, the man shall eat from his work, which produces thorns and thistles. Man shall be defined by the pain of his futile work. Men so often are defined by accomplishments, but they are simply sandcastles that are waiting to be destroyed by upcoming waves. Husbands and wives are both worn down by the exhaustion of life. Children, work, Responsibilities, work wears a marriage couple down, crushing the relationship by the sheer exhaustion of life. Wives, your husbands need your support, your prayers, your counsel, your love, because they're being crushed by the futility of life. Be wise. And as the story continues, so I know I have to hurry, but what happens in chapter 4 of Genesis? It gets worse for them. They lose two children. One of their sons, Cain, who's the, they see as the promised son. Wow, I've gotten a child. Cain is the Hebrew word forgotten. They got a child, right? And then what happens? They have another child, Abel. And what happens? Cain is jealous of Abel's offering to God, and Cain kills his brother. And then, so Adam and Eve lose a child, who's one of their children, kills them. And then what happens to Cain? He's kicked out. He's removed from the presence of God. He leaves. They lost two children like that. Gone. Gone. They lost children. Sad. Tragic. We never think about that, Abney, right? They're never brought into the story. It's always Abney, Abel, and Cain, which they are kind of the focus of the story. But they lose their children. They lose them. Children that they love. Their first child, Cain, was taken from them. Tragic story. 
But thankfully it ends with a little bit of hope. The end of chapter 4, I'm going to read this. And Adam and Eve knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at the time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The story ends with a forward trajectory of hope. Hope in God's all-sufficient grace. To the end. God provides for them, even after the fall. God still provides. God is still full of grace for Adam and Eve. They sinned. They made a massive mistake. But yet God was still loving, merciful, and graceful, and provided for them, and gave them hope. You have to think about them for a second, Adam and Eve. They had to come across, it had to come across their minds that the reason that Cain killed Abel is because of their own sin. They brought that into the world. They were somewhat at fault. The tragedy, the pain, the suffering that they felt. And then God continued to provide for them. He provided another child. He provided for Eve when, when he told her that because of her sin, that childbearing was going to be painful, but yet she still survived it. And God provided for her and provided Seth. And Seth had a son named Enosh. And they, what did they do? They called upon the name of the Lord. They worshipped God. They recognized God. They prayed to Him. They knew God. Enosh and Seth were mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That through the bloodline of Enosh, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and Jesus Christ. The child that would come and, and, and crush the head of the serpent came through Adam and Eve. There was grace. God provided all sufficient grace for them in their tragic story. This marriage story ends with hope. The source of hope in marriage is not better sex. The source of hope in marriage is not a better spouse. The source of hope in marriage is God. The only way to recognize and experience that hope is a believing heart. You have to believe in Christ. You have to trust Him. And Adam and Eve trusted God. And God gave them hope. Marriage filled with hope in God is nothing less than an overglow of the Garden of Eden, radiant with hope until perfection is finally restored. Every marriage needs hope because the reality is the pain of Genesis 3 still lingers in every present and future marriage. No spouse is perfect. No marriage is perfect. Every spouse is broken and weak. And every marriage is broken and weak. It's broken. It's weak. You are not the example of perfection. You are weak. And the only way you're going to make it to the end is the all-sufficient grace of God. That's it. All the sufficient grace of God provides the hope in the fiery trials of marriage. Through humility, struggles, pain, loss, and disappointments, God permits us to continue to enjoy his gift of marriage and allow us to experience, at times, the joy of being naked and unashamed. We get to experience that, and it doesn't happen all the time, does it? Amidst all that, there is pain, there is embarrassment, there is shame, but and there's moments where you're naked and unashamed, and God is glorified and praised. And that is by the grace of God, by Him alone. There are no perfect spouses, there are no perfect marriages, only a perfect God. That's it. 
And your, and your belief and faith in God will give you perseverance and endurance in your marriage. That is not perfect. It's to live with your imperfect spouse. We can learn from Adam and Eve's marriage story that is a gift from God that will provide, that will bring headache. That is inevitable. The person you married is not perfect. Marriage since the beginning of time has shown that without God's all-sufficient grace, you have no hope in marriage. Your spouse is cursed. They and you will change from the better and for worse. You are to have any hope that your marriage will reflect the garden of Eden, the interdependent relationship of love, sacrifice, devotion, oneness, and comfort. You must both look to the all-sufficient grace. That's it. So some of you are married. You've had some heartache. You've had some pain. You've had some struggle. The only thing that's going to help you into the future is the all-sufficient grace of God. For some of you who are praying about marriage, you, maybe you have a boyfriend or girlfriend or you want to be married, the only advice I can give you that will, long, will, 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 will be timeless to the end of time is the all-sufficient grace of God. <coughs> Cling to the all-sufficient grace of God. Rest more deeply in the all-sufficient grace. Dear Lord, I pray that you would teach us from Adam and Eve's story. Lord, that you would give us a, a picture, Lord, of what they experienced in the garden. And may you sanctify us and grow us in our marriages or in our, if we're not married, in our future marriages, Lord, that we would reflect the characteristics of the marriage in the garden, Lord. May you help us to realize, Lord, that we are cursed. The effects of the fall in Genesis 3 affects all of us. It affects our marriage. It affects the people we marry. Lord, you would give us an understanding of your grace. That you would humble us. And that you would help us, Lord, to rely on Christ. You would give us believing hearts to rely on Christ. And that through our belief in Christ, you would provide us the grace to be godly husbands and godly wives. That our marriages would reflect you, Lord. That you would be glorified by our marriages, Lord. By our future marriages. For those in the room who have experienced the brokenness of marriage, they have been, they've gotten divorced. Something that they never planned on. No one plans to get divorced when they get married. Where you give them hope this morning, Lord. But you provide them the hope that they do not have this morning. That they would experience your all-sufficient grace, Lord. Give them your grace. Get them out of the embarrassment and out of the shame. And may you restore them, Lord. May they realize that 